probably the most exciting point in my life. Just kind of rewind for a minute. I was 23, 24. I had just been hired on at a, at a growing church way on the west side of town. And I was a single youth pastor, which meant that I just bought my own uh, small kind of ranch style home. And I had a Jeep Wrangler, soft top, right? And I had a, a 1977 Honda motorcycle. It was gorgeous. And I had way too big of a television. I was single. You know, I had an income and I just wanted to have fun. And I would go on dates occasionally. I was constantly the joke uh, to my superiors who was like, Luke, live it up, man. This is like temporary. You're 23. Like, just live it up while you can. I'm like, no, no, this is going to be lifelong stuff, right? And, and so I would have students over to my house all the time. And we'd play Xbox and we would eat too much pizza and wrestle on the floor. And it was a ton of fun. And I really enjoyed it. I, I, I literally could have been a bad episode of Cribs, Youth Pastor Edition. And it would have been, no one would have watched it. But all of that changed, all of that, that single kind of bachelor life changed when I met my wife, my beautiful, incredible wife. Here's a picture of her and me. We were engaged. This is one of our engagement photos. She looks incredible. I wore a t-shirt. Um, I don't know what to tell you. Somehow she still loves me despite the fact that I wore a t-shirt to our engagement photo. She, she is incredible. I met my wife there and, and she was, <laughs> I was speaking at the college ministry and she showed up that night and she was kind of husband hunting. <laughs> Actually, she wasn't. She was looking to serve Christ with her life. I was wife hunting. So I'm speaking at the college ministry and she shows up and I, and I speak. I'm like, oh, okay. Hi. And she was like, you're weird. And, and so I, I'm going to spare you all of the awkward details of me trying to gain this girl's attention. But eventually I asked her on my first date. My first date with my wife was I invited her over to my house to help me install a surround sound system for my TV. My, my single brothers, do not do that. Don't, don't do that. My second date, I was like, okay, I should probably feed her. So my second date, I, I, made, I invited her over and I made her some scrambled eggs, Okay. And I gave her plain sliced bread. I didn't even toast it. I just gave her bread. And she kind of smiled at me. I didn't know if she liked me or thought I was just really weird. And, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to lose this girl if I don't up my date game here. And so I, I was like, okay, i got to figure this out. So I asked her. I started changing my patterns. I asked her to go to the Indianapolis Art Museum with me downtown. And I was really excited, and so was she. And I was like, hey, meet me at my house after you get off work, because she was a working professional as well. And so she met me at home, um, at my home, and before we jumped in my Jeep to head downtown, she goes, hey, are we going to eat? I was like, I'd totally forgotten about that thing that people do between six and seven, which is dinner. And I was like, yeah, I've got some leftover pizza in the fridge from last night. And she was like, okay. And I opened the fridge. I kid you not, you can ask my wife later. I pulled out a frying pan in which I had stored the frozen pizza in and fed her with leftover frozen pizza. My single brothers, like, do not take those cues. Like, do way better than that. And I was like, I've got to up my date game even more. And so I started to change my patterns a little bit more. And so I owned this motorcycle and I was like, this is going to be fun. And so I put her on the back of the bike. I took her on, on motorcycle rides through the country Dude, it was awesome. I felt like I was in Top Gun, right? The girl was on the back. Like, she had a helmet. I had a helmet. We were having the best time ever. Like, the faster I went, the tighter she squeezed me. And I was like, this formula works perfect. Like, I'll just keep going fast, and you keep hugging me. And this is, this is just awesome. 
And finally, and I loved that. I don't know that she loved that. I loved that. After I really, really started to fall for this girl, I said, hey, Ashley, I'm going to take you on the most memorable date of your entire life. I was going for broke here. I needed to gain this girl's attention. I needed to land the plane figuratively, if you know what I mean. And so I was like, hey, meet me at my house after work. It's a surprise. You're going to have a great time. She goes, okay. So she meets me at my house. I throw her in the Jeep, put the pop top down, drive into the country. I take her to Indianapolis Executive Airport, which is just a little airstrip in the country, northwest part of town. And my dad met us there, who's a pilot, and at the, at the time owned a little four-passenger single-prop plane. And I flew that girl to a steak dinner, baby, and it was awesome. And I have the picture to prove it. Right here, I flew that girl to a steak dinner, and it was awesome. And I landed that plane, if you know what I mean. I got that girl's attention, and it was so fun. We had so, so much fun. I, as I kind of think back to dating my wife, we, we just had a ton of fun and went through all kinds of fun memories, and I just made all kinds of stupid mistakes, and there's just lots of laughs and lots of fun and pictures. And, but as I'm thinking about this morning, I'm thinking about this very provocative series we're in called Awake and Love, as I thought about this story, I thought, you only are going to hear the good stuff. You're only going to hear all of the special moments uh, from my dating relationship with my wonderful wife, all the moments that were kind of filled with romance and fun and excitement. And I'm not really going to belabor all of the moments that were like weird and awkward in dating and frustrating there was like a 24-hour breakup we had at one point. That was weird. There was a whole slew of other things because what was happening is that I was a broken human being falling in love with another broken human being. And it came with all kinds of, like, uh, I didn't read this in the manual. Where was this? Nobody taught me this part of dating. What, what is going on? I had no idea what I was doing. And most of us that are married can relate to that. We didn't really have any idea what we were doing when we were dating this significant other. We were just kind of making it up as you went. We were just making it up. And, and as I'm thinking about that scenario, I, I picture what pop culture tells the world what dating and relationships and sex ought to look like. And they are so juxtaposed that we have, we have what is real and we have what is pop culture suggests is the right way to date, be in relationships, and, and embrace sex. And I can tell you right now that my dating relationship with my wife looked absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing like what pop culture says dating relationships and sex ought to look like. They are entirely different in every possible way. And we cannot insulate ourselves from this as Christians we know that many of us are connected to technology all the time. And whether you are watching reality TV shows or you are just simply following people on Twitter or just hearing the news or watching the halftime show at the Super Bowl, you are inundated with an idea of what dating, relationships, and sex looks like. And the culture places a premium on dating, relationships, and sex that is entirely different than the premium that God places on dating, relationships, and sex. And so this morning, what I, man, what I feel so convicted to do this morning is to place a premium on God's perfect design 
for dating and relationships and sex. Because let's just be really honest for a minute. Whether you are married in here, whether you are dating, serious relationship, or single, especially those who are single and dating, you're asking a slew of questions, which is, does God have a plan? Does God have a plan for my dating life? Is there anything I can do to move up God's timeline here? Does he even care? Does God even care about my dating and relationship life? And I think what is so cool about Awaken Love and about Song of Songs is that the answer is yes. That Song of Songs is this book that for the last 2,000 years and during the canonization process, the Holy Spirit said, yep, that needs to be in the Bible because the church throughout the epochs need to know that God has a plan and God cares about dating and relationships and sex more than you could ever imagine. As a matter of fact, he cares about it more than pop culture does. He cares about it more than you and I do. And so I have a message for you this morning. It's kind of the primer theme to where we're going to be going the next 30 minutes. It's dating, relationships, and sex are not just physical, they're spiritual. Dating, relationships, and sex are not just physical, they are spiritual. The premium that pop culture places on dating, relationships, and sex is purely physical, and at best, physical and emotional. Never, ever considering the spiritual element to dating, relationships, and sex. And we know that there's a spiritual element. If not, it's the foundational element. Otherwise, Song of Songs would not be in the Bible. Song of Songs... This great Hebrew idiom, meaning the song of all songs or the greatest song. And we see it here in God's word, guiding the church 2,000 years later after it was placed in the Holy Bible. And here we have God's guidance on these topics. I realize I'm speaking to two different audiences today. Those who are married, I've only been married about five years. I'm still very, very much a newlywed. And I know that many of you in here are veterans and been married 40 years. And some of you just got married or are dating or in a serious relationship or single. I want you to know that the two categories are I'm married or I'm not. If you are married, my challenge is for you to take what God's word says this morning and reproduce it in the lives of the people that you mentor. And reproduce it in the lives of the people that you disciple and love and that you minister to. Or you're single, which you can take this morning and you can apply it immediately to your context. You guys ready to do this? Here we go. We're going to read Song of Songs chapter 2. It is in your Bible, Song of Songs chapter 2. It will also be on the screen. And I will say a short prayer before we get deep into it. Lord, we're excited. We're excited to see how you guide us on these topics. We know it's different. We know it's a little bit awkward sometimes. We embrace it. God, I pray that we would be an awkward church this morning. We are so excited to, to hear from your word, and faith comes by hearing, and we want to apply your word so that our lives might change forever because of it. Yeah, we love you, Jesus, a lot. In your name we pray, amen. This is what Song of Songs chapter 2 says, the bantering be between Solomon and his bride-to-be now. This is how it starts out, verse 1. The bride-to-be says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Goes down to the groom-to-be. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Back to the lady. Like an apple tree among the trees 
of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter has passed, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. And back to the first person, man, he says, My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. And finally, the bride in 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies. It is so clearly evident. It is so clearly evident that Solomon and this bride-to-be are wicked in love at this point. Like, chemistry is through the roof, right? All kind of sparks are flying. They're like, you're like a gazelle that leaps through the meadows and such, and that's what you remind me of. And there's all kinds of, like, deep, beautiful poetry going on. And like I said, in its time, this was, like, wicked in a style. Not so much today, but we can surely appreciate the poetry now. And there's a couple of interpretations that the church has embraced over the past couple thousand years that are really important for us to know. And the first of one being a Jewish tradition. A Jewish tradition, which is an allegory of God's love for Israel. Traditionally, which makes sense, that the relationship between Solomon and his bride-to-be in this, in this unit is a picture of God's love for Israel. This is an Old Testament context book, and it could be understood in that light. The second tradition, of course, is a Christian tradition, which is an allegory for Christ's love for the church, which also makes sense. The Apostle Paul appropriates this idea in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says that the love that God has for the church, it's like the love that a man has for his wife. That the love that a man has for his wife is a symbol of the love God has for his church. That Christian tradition there being clear now too. But there is a third element. There's a third element that we can't ignore. And it's the consistent pieces of garden imagery that is in Song of Songs. Like, what's with all the daisies and the flowers and the lilies and like the rocks and the mountainsides and all of the beautiful landscape that's going on? Like, this dude was like a landscape architect. He knew exactly how to like capture the mind and, and create a picture of what it looks like. The consistent imagery of the garden recapitulates all the way back to Genesis and creates an Edenic scene where we see Adam and Eve also in a garden. And in that garden is a safe, vulnerable, monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. And it's so cool to see how God brings this full circle of the consistent imagery of garden. 
There's vulnerability. There's safety that Adam and Eve experienced before the fall. And now Solomon and his bride-to-be are experiencing safety and vulnerability in a healthy, monogamous context. What's so cool is that over the past uh, couple, even hundred years, archaeologists continue to find poems just like Song of Songs in the ancient world, giving credit to that this was a big deal in Hebrew day. This was, a, this was a common practice. People would write poems. People would read poems. This was their love language. And so we, we can really approach Song of Songs and we can see that this, this really needs to be read on its own terms. This is a love poem. Sometimes cheesy, but it's a love poem. And how it instructs us all these years later is we have a template. We have a blueprint. The answer is yes, God does care about dating and relationships and sex quite a bit. Answering some of the deepest questions of who we are as people in regards to relationships and dating and sex. You know, the, the, the Solomon and his bride-to-be falling madly in love, they begin to give little bits of wisdom that emerge from the unit. And, and we see these throughout the passage. And the, the woman really gets this, like she nails it like right away. Look at what she says in verse seven. She says in verse seven, daughters of Jerusalem. So all my single friends, right? Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you to charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. The real question is why? The real question is why? Why don't we arouse? Why, why should we not arouse or awaken love until it so desires? I think it's because the woman knew when you wake that sleeping giant, it don't go back to sleep. Not very easily. She just knew. She, she knew the power of sexual drive. And, and it's true. I mean, we know that the, the sexual draw is one of the most powerful of all human experiences. And she, knows, she knows that. And she's like, hey, single friends of mine, don't do this until it's time because you can't really reverse it that well. It's really hard to reverse. I think, it's, I think it's so strategic and it's so brilliant. Here's our problem. Us Westerners, us Westerners hear the words do not, and what do we do? Screw that. I'm going to do whatever I want. That is what we do as Westerners, especially Americans. We, 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 we hear something that says do not, and we're like, that motivates me to do it. Yep, now I want to. It's the classic, like, don't do it. Oh, I didn't know I had the option. Now I want to, Right? And we hear stuff like that, and we're like, you can't tell me what to do. I will do whatever I please. And that is society. That is pop culture. Pop culture has made billions of dollars on that very idea. Isn't it funny how in a world where the words do not are shunned and mocked, God uses for guidance. In a world where the words do not are shunned and mocked and made fun of. Oh, just do whatever feels good, man. Just do whatever you want. We shun and mock him, but God uses it for guidance. God is not in the business of trying to rob us of joy 
He's not in the business of saying, I'm going to keep that person, that guy or that gal, right there so they don't experience joy. We don't see God behave that way in Scripture at all. As a matter of fact, we see the opposite. We see God consistently through Scripture set up his people, and he says, you will experience the most joy. You will experience the most joy in my perfect design. You will, you, will, you will obtain the most joy that I've got planned for you in my perfect design. There's no other design that will give you joy like mine does. Unfortunately, we've seen pop culture's version, and we see dating and relationships and sex, and we're like, those are of the highest attainable virtues. If I could just experience dating and relationships and sex the way that I see it on television and in the songs that I hear in pop culture and in the movies that I watch and maybe even the romance novels that I read, if anyone still does that. And, you know, we see and we hear and we have all these means of pop culture telling us what dating relationships and sex are supposed to be like. And God's like, the second you put anything good in the place of God, it becomes an idol. And that's the unique nature of what God has given us. It's all really good. It's just not God. For example, dating is good, but not as good as God. Relationships are good, just not as good as God. And sex is good, but not as good as God. Pop culture says they're all God. And we, the church, have got to get better at this. We have got to start having the wisdom to discern pop culture's suggestions of what is good and what is God. Pop culture actually makes a premium on calling good evil and evil good. When Miley Cyrus licks a hammer on stage and everyone praises her and then the Robertson family prays at dinner and everyone shuns them, we know that pop culture's got it twisted around. We know that the pop culture has totally got it backwards. All these things are good. They're just, they're just not God. And this is especially true and especially directed at my single friends or my friends who are in dating relationships currently or my friends that uh, perhaps have endured a divorce and are now single again. Whatever your circumstance might be, I want to speak directly to my single friends. You know, when you show up to a church service that says awake and love and Valentine's Day was last week and you're like... Thanks for the salt in the wound, right? And, and you're tired of hearing about dating and relationships and sex. And Can I just say this? Don't waste your singleness. I am so convinced, I'm so convinced that only a few people really have the gift of celibacy. I am totally persuaded that there's not a lot of Pauls in this world. That God actually delights in giving you the desires of your hearts and knows them well. He placed them there. He placed them there. And, and my single friends, I appeal to you just for a moment with this idea. The nature of your impact when you are single is different than the nature of your impact when you are married. Take Paul, for example. Paul, Paul would have had a real tough time Sailing across the Mediterranean on his three missionary journeys, getting beat to a pulp, going to jail consistently, 
shipwrecking on an island, getting bit by a snake. Do you think his wife and kids would have appreciated that living context? Probably not. Probably not. I, I doubt Paul would have been able to be as effective as he was in his calling if he had four kids and a wife in tow. Does that mean that a family can't go out and be missionaries in the world? Absolutely not. You bet we've seen families go out and change the world through mission. Let me give you a more contemporary example. When I was 24 and a single youth pastor, every single night I would have high school dudes over to play Xbox, eat pizza, and have wrestling matches. Guess what I did when I got married? Not that. <laughs> it's just different. It's just different. The nature of impact when you are single is different than the impact when you are married. Don't waste your singleness. Use it. Use it to change the world. Use it to expand the boundaries of God's kingdom. I'd like to think that it's temporary. Unfortunately, we believe pop culture's timelines. If we're not married and have kids by 25, we're doing something wrong. No, no, that's silly. All throughout scripture, we see God match up biblical characters and his timing. I mean, my goodness, Abraham and Sarah didn't even get prego until they were like a hundred or so. Like the reality is, is that like we cannot put pop culture's timeline as God's timeline. We got to start placing a premium on God's perfect design because pop cultures isn't working. And a lot of us have believed that pop culture's design could work or would work. So, this is the part of the message where I really, really want my single friends to like tune in really precisely and my married friends who mentor me and mentor other young people to take this information and, and apply it to the people that you love and disciple and lead. What I think that we're seeing in Song of Songs is a beautiful picture of God saying, this is where it's at. It exposes a whole lot of myths in pop culture's philosophy. And so I, I'm going to focus on three myths. Three myths that I think are critical for us to acknowledge and then possibly just to say, I'm not going to believe that myth any longer. So single friends, dial in right here. And before you throw anything at me, know that... <laughs> That to me, this is the word of God speaking into our lives. And if later you want to debate with me, just debate with me in the prayer room later and we can do that. That's fine. Number one, the soulmate myth. This is, this is my favorite myth. The soulmate myth says that there's actually not the one. Now before like you just start booing, let, hear me out. Hear me out. Let me qualify this. There are seven billion people in this world you are compatible with more than one of them. That's a lot of people. eHarmony has made their money off that very idea, right? They want you to have options. That's the idea, is that you are compatible with more than one person. Do you know why my wife is my soulmate? Because on August, was it 17th? Yeah, August 17th, 2012, I said... I do to her. And she became my soulmate. She became the one. And I am more madly crazy in love with my awesome wife today than I was on the day that I said I do to her. 
There is no such thing as the one. And I know this to be true because if any one of us married the wrong one, it would ruin it for everybody else. Thanks, moron. You just screwed it up for the world. Like the one person that married the wrong person, the wrong one screws it up for everybody else. As a matter of fact, the scriptures are super clear about this. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. It does not say a man who finds the wife. It does not say the man who finds his wife by fate. It just says a man who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Half the battle is finding a wife. Gentlemen, right? It doesn't specify that there's one particular person God has in mind. Of course, he knows the outcome of our decisions, but my goodness. And so what we've believed in the soulmate myth is that if the person doesn't look a certain way, sound a certain way, has a certain job, does certain things, doesn't have bad breath, like all of the preferences that we place as we project the perfect person, man, it's the soulmate myth. And movies have made millions of dollars off that idea. Still do. It's entertaining. It's just not real. Which leads me to my next myth. The potential myth. The potential myth. Sane that he or she has potential is a sure sign you're trying to convince yourself of something you already know is true. It's the potential myth. Don't look for potential. Look for patterns. You're like, oh, Luke, but he's got potential. Yeah, but he still lives in his mom's basement. And he keeps going back to his old girlfriend every single time you guys are on a break. And he's in and out of prison every year. Don't look for potential. Look for patterns. Oh, but Luke, she's got potential. She's so hot. Like she's got potential. Yeah, but she's got 19 credit cards. And she's filed bankruptcy. And she can't hold a job for more than six months. Don't look for potential. Look for patterns. And when their patterns change, their potential will change also. And you cannot change someone's patterns. Only God can do that. Only God can change someone's patterns. We see, we see this last myth. This is a, this is a hard one for me to, to really talk about because um, for many of us, this last myth is a way of life. And I just, I'm just going to ask you to consider it. I'm not asking you to just take it word of mouth. Just consider it. The last myth is the American dream myth. Now, when I say American dream myth, I actually do not reference uh, the free enterprise or the voluntary exchange of goods and services. That's not what I'm referring to. What I'm referring to is the American dream myth in regards to the American dream myth in dating, relationships, and sex. That's what I'm meaning. And what has happened in the American dream myth in regards to those three topics is entirely unrealistic expectations has been fed 
to our world. And as cute as the show, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette is, I'm going to try to attempt to teach the premise of this show. So you can shoot that picture up on the screen. He's either the luckiest dude in the world or he's the dumbest. You know what I mean? Like the drama that would come from that many relationships. My goodness. It is entirely unrealistic. The premise of this show, as cute as it is, is, using the metaphor, I'm going to go to the store, try on a pair of pants, see if I like them, but all at the same time. (laughs) I'm going to try on every single pair of pants that I like all at the same time. That is the premise of Bachelor and Bachelorette. And, and, And we know, we know this is a reality TV show. We know that this is for entertainment. But man, has it made its way into the way that we think, right? It has made its way into the way that we operate. It has made its way into the way that we engage and disengage in relationships. Bachelor and bachelorette, man, they have made so much money on the concept of the American dream myth. You can do whatever you want to do in relationships and dating and sex and have a healthy outcome. That is what this communicates. But we know that that's not real. It's not real. Tinder. How about Tinder? This is, this is a hilarious one. Tinder it has made so much money off the idea of projection. I'm going to project the best possible image of myself to whomever's looking. But communication experts say that 80% of communication is actually body language. So you know what that communicates? I am only interested in a one-night stand. That's what that communicates. I'm only interested in your body. I'm not interested in your story. I'm not interested in your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your vulnerabilities, your liabilities. I just looking to hook up. They have made so much money off the American dream myth that you can do whatever you want to do. Finally, in verse 14, this is so important that we talk about this. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. King Solomon as we see this relationship being engaged in, he understands that a lot can compromise the integrity of a relationship. Catch for us the foxes, as if to say, let's shore up every little thing, no matter how big or how small, let's, let's shore it up, because we don't want anything to compromise the health of this safe, vulnerable, monogamous relationship. And church, we have got to get this right. You know why we've got to get this right? Because we are the beacon to this city. Because we are the hope of this state. The church is God's plan A to get the gospel to the world. And we have got to get this right. If we get this right, we're going to start seeing schools change forever. If we can get our relationships in order, if we can get this right, we're going to start seeing our kids grow up and believe what God says about dating and relationships and sex. Church, we have got to get this right, right now. There is a world that is confused and hurting and questioning. And they look at the church and they say, you're not living any different than us. We have got to get 
this right church. My final question for, for any of you in any context, this question when it was asked of me stung deeply. And I do not mean to sting on purpose, but rather to challenge and to call us into a greater standard of godliness. And as you think about you, if you are single, I want you to ask yourself this. Would you marry you? Would you marry you? This is not a plea for like an Oprah Winfrey kind of self-help book, self-improvement kind of effort. That is not what I'm suggesting. Instead, I am suggesting that the church give up. Give up and give over to God their dating and relationship and sex lives. Because nobody cares about your sex life. Nobody cares about your dating life and your relationships as much as Christ does. And he has the perfect design for us to enter into. And I'm telling you, church, when we do, he is faithful to meet us halfway. And he will use that to change the world. And as we give up over our dating and relationships and sex lives to God, watch him do what only God can do. The reason this is important is because character attracts character and there is no character comparable to the character of Christ in you. I'm gonna say a short prayer. As the band comes up and leads us again into worship, I just wanna ask you, I wanna ask you, church, are you ready to give up something that maybe you have been gripping tightly for a long time? Maybe it's, it's something in the context of dating or relationships or, or your sex, how you embrace sex. Like maybe there's something that you've been believing about pop culture for a long time and you just need to give it up. And just say, God, I've been trying to control the outcome. I got to give this over to you today. Today. Maybe this morning is that day. And I'm telling you, man, when we take that step of faith and we trust God with that outcome, we're going to see God do what he does. Thank you.